Acts chapter 20. We've been on this speech for some time, about four sermons, I think. It's taken us two months or so to get through that many. Paul calls the Ephesian elders to himself. He hands the baton, as we've seen, remember. Paul calls them to say, I'm leaving, but the kingdom is not going anywhere. I'm leaving, but elders, it's on you. You take care of this church. Here's how I took care of the church. And he describes that at length to tell them, this is how you too should be taking care of the church. So let's listen to the whole speech. Verse 17, from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called for the elders of the church. And when they had come to him, he said to them, you know, from the first day that I came to Asia and what manner I always lived among you serving the Lord with all humility, with many tears and trials which happened to me by the plotting of the Jews, and how I kept back nothing that was helpful, but proclaimed it to you and taught you publicly and from house to house, testifying to Jews and also to Greeks, repentance toward God, faith toward our Lord Jesus Christ. And see, now I go bound in the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city that chains and tribulations await me. None of these things move me, nor do I count my life dear to myself so that I may finish my race with joy in the ministry which I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I have gone preaching the kingdom of God, will see my face no more. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. Therefore, take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. Also from among yourselves, men will rise up speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. Therefore, watch. And remember that for three years I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears. And now, brethren, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. Yes, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my necessities and for those who were with me. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak and remember the, Lord, the words of the Lord Jesus that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. Then they all wept freely and fell on Paul's neck and kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words which he spoke, that they would see his face no more. And they accompanied him to the ship. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that we are in the keeping of you and the word of your grace. Father, help us to entrust ourselves to you tonight and on a daily basis. Build us up by your word. Help us to imitate the example of your apostle in whom we see the kingdom of God in its certainty. Give us ears to hear your call, eyes to see your word, open our minds to understand the scriptures. 
Help me to speak energetically and powerfully with demonstration of the Spirit so that your people can hear and be nourished and built up by the word of your grace. We pray these things in the name of Jesus our Lord. Amen. Our passage has two parts. First part, Paul commends them to God. That's verse 32. And then in 32 through, 33 through 35, he gives one final summary of his work. Somewhat of a repetition of the topic that he started the speech with. How he served God in Ephesus. What do these two things have to do with each other? Paul commending them to God. Paul reminding them of how he served. And the answer is that both these things affirm that the kingdom is continuing after Paul leaves. You're commended to God. God is going to keep you. His kingdom is not departing. God built his kingdom among you by Paul's work. Those two things come together. God maintains the church. Human elders maintain the church. Paul is affirming both of those things in this final paragraph of his speech. What is the point? God keeps his people through his word and through their own hard work. God keeps his people through his word and through their own hard work. Both of these are only possible because of the generosity of Jesus who said it is more blessed to give than to receive. Because of the generosity of Christ, he keeps us through his word, but he also keeps us through our work. So how do we entrust ourselves to God? Verse 32 deals with that. Paul says, I commend you to God. What does that commending to God mean? Well, it's a a handing over. I'm putting you at God's feet. I'm putting you in God's hands. I am no longer the responsible party for the church in Ephesus. You're in God's hands now. The keeping of God is that wondrous providence whereby he monitors his people, provides for their needs, leads them through whatever path to their appointed end. Paul says, that's where you are. I commend you to God. That is, I place you in God's keeping. I commit you to Him. So this is, this is something that you would say at the end of a relationship, when you're leaving. It's the equivalent of have a nice life. I'm not going to see you again. And so I put you, you're out of my, my zone, my orbit, my, my territory. I'm not going to be able to help you from this point on. I'm handing you over to God. So says Paul. This keeping of God is simply his ordinary providence. But it's supercharged. It's what Paul describes in Ephesians as God making Christ head over all things for the church. He is head over all things, but he manages everything providentially for the good of his church. So it is, Paul says, I commend you to God, not that they weren't in God's keeping before, but simply that they're now in God's keeping and not also in Paul's keeping. The Ephesian church is in God's hands, as it always was, and in the hands of the Ephesian elders. 
So Paul had been the one keeping them. Now he hands them over to God. But he doesn't just hand them over to God. He says, I commend you to God and to the word of his grace. So in other words, Ephesians, don't just sit back and say, well, God's got us now. God's in the driver's seat. We'll sit back, relax, and enjoy the flight. No, I commend you to God, yes, but also to the word of his grace. They're not just in God's hands. They're under the care of God's word. Now, what does that mean? Well, it means, first of all, that God's word is what we call a means of grace. God's word is a channel through which his grace runs. Paul says that it's a word characterized by grace. A word of God's unmerited favor. Which, think about it, did God have to speak to us? And if God did speak to us, did he have to speak to us at such length? What, in this edition, the Bible is a 1,300-page book? No, right? God did not have to speak to us at all. The very fact that he did so is gracious. And so the Bible is the word of his grace, the record of his gracious acts for his people, and the word that he graciously spoke to us when he didn't have to speak to us at all. Paul tells them, you're not just in God's keeping, you are kept by the word of God. The word is a way in which God sends you his grace. Why is that? Well, because the benefits of the word are heart benefits that come to us through the understanding. God doesn't give us these things which Paul describes in the rest of the verse, an inheritance, being built up, being sanctified. Those are not external changes entirely. Those are also internal. They come to us by way of the conscious life. So God gives them to us through the word. That is, when we hear the words of Jesus, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Those words actually have the power to change our hearts and make us more generous. God's word can graciously come in and do that by changing your opinion so that you no longer think he who dies with the most toys wins. Rather, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So Paul commends them to the word of God's grace and he says, yes, God's word is a means of grace. If you want to know the favor of God, get in the Word and stay in the Word. If you want to know what God is like, if you want to know how He thinks, if you want to be more like Him, the Word is where it's at. We speak in the Reformed tradition of three means of grace, the Word, sacraments, and prayer. Now, our Catholic friends would add a fourth, the Church, as the primary means of grace. But... Really, the primary one of those is the first one we list, the Word. Paul doesn't say, I commend you to God, so pray hard to Him. He doesn't say, I commend you to God in the keeping of your baptism. He says, I commend you to God and His Word. So stay in the Word, because what can the Word do? The Word of His grace, which is able to build you up. The Word has the power to edify. It builds you up in terms of your character, in terms of your participation in the body of Christ, 
in terms of your obedience to the commands of God. Christian life is about being built up as living stones forming God's holy temple. What does that? What tool does God use to shape us into those living stones? The answer is His Word. Again, because it's a conscious process. Something that takes place by way of the intellect and will. Not something that takes place by way of physical uh, motion or changes imposed from outside. It's not, I commend you to the, the surgeon's knife that will cut away your fat and make you the right shape for the temple of God. No, I commend you to the Bible, the Word that builds you up. So if you're feeling low, if you're feeling weak, run down, the Word is for you. The Word builds up. The Word also grants an inheritance. The Word is able to build you up and give you an inheritance. What is the inheritance? Well, the book of Hebrews tells us that God wrote His will and left you everything. Or rather, Jesus wrote His will and left you everything, everything that He has, and then He died. And that triggered the provisions of the will. When the one who made the will dies, the will comes into effect, and you and I inherit everything that belonged to Jesus. And He conveys those things to us, those spiritual blessings, through this book. The Word gives us an inheritance. So just as the legal document, a will, can give you an earthly inheritance, this book gives you a heavenly inheritance. Everything that Jesus died to leave you. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, meekness, faith, self-control. These things come to us through the Word of God. The benefits the spiritual blessings in the heavenly places in Christ are ours through the Word of God. So don't neglect the Word, despise the Word, or don't just read it for information. Well, I want to know what life was like in first century Palestine. No, read it for what it contains, which is every spiritual blessing. It contains the inheritance that you have in Christ. And to use a rather obvious metaphor, if your parents were well-to-do and they die and you and your siblings don't know what's in the will and you go to their desk and look through their papers, you're all going to be reading that will rather carefully. You'll be anxious to see what it contains. Well, that's what Paul says. This book describes your inheritance. This book conveys your inheritance. And so I'm commending you to the keeping, not just of God, but of His Word, because it grants that inheritance. Where is the inheritance found, though? The inheritance is not found on your own. It's found in the community of the sanctified. It gives you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. This inheritance is a joint property. It is not something you can claim on your own. Rather, you get the spiritual benefits, the blessings that Jesus died to leave you, only among others who receive the same benefits. Right. 
don't be the Lone Ranger Christian. If you are, you can say goodbye to the benefits of that inheritance. Love, joy, peace, the fruits of the Spirit, the other things that God does for us, making us holy, so we exist for Him, changing our moral character, changing our heart and attitude. That happens in community. That happens among all those who are sanctified. Now that's obviously true even in earthly terms. Human beings who are interested in one particular thing go to great lengths to find others who are interested in that thing and participate with them. You will never be a firearms enthusiast on your own. It can't be done. You would not be able to make yourself all the varieties of guns. You have to find others who manufacture the guns, who trade the guns, who talk about the guns, who discuss the guns, who upgrade the guns, and so it is with any human field or hobby that you might pursue. How much more true is that of following Jesus? The inheritance comes among all those who are sanctified, and it doesn't come anywhere else. So if you want to look like Jesus, if you want the fruits of the Spirit, if you want to be built up, don't take your Bible and go in the closet and never come out again. Take your Bible and go to church and never come out again. To be in the keeping of God requires the Word of God, Paul says. I commend you to God, and in the same breath, I commend you to the Word of His grace. God keeps you, and He keeps you through the book, through the Word that describes His grace to you in Jesus. So don't expect to be kept without the Word. It won't happen. Paul goes on then to say, essentially, here's how I entrusted myself to God. The kingdom is continuing. God maintains the church. God supports the church. Here's how I supported the church as an under-shepherd, as a servant of God. And the first thing he gives is this pretty impressive news. In Ephesus, he says, I beat my besetting sin. Now, that's a tall order. All of us know what our besetting sin is. And if we're telling ourselves the truth, we know that it... uh, is very hard to make it go away. But Paul tells us in Romans 7 that covetousness was his besetting sin. He describes himself as a Pharisee and he says, uh, Romans 7, 7, I would not have known covetousness unless the law had said, you shall not covet. But sin taking opportunity by the commandment produced in me all manner of evil desire. For apart from the law, sin was dead. Right, So he said elsewhere, according to the righteousness in the law, I was blameless. But in Romans 7 he admits there was one commandment I didn't keep, and that was the tenth, thou shalt not covet. I was a covetous soul. But I came here to Ephesus, and I didn't covet anyone's silver, anyone's gold, or anyone's clothes. Now we may find that a little bit eyebrow-raising to think of coveting clothing. 
But that is something that Paul explicitly disclaims. I did not look out at you every Sunday and say, I want that guy's toga. (laughs) Why did he say that? Well, (laughs) in that day, clothing was in the class of something more like a car, maybe not quite that expensive, but clothing was not something where you would keep many, many pieces in your closet. Every piece of cloth had to be hand-woven, and it took many hours of work, and clothing was extremely expensive. Paul says, I didn't covet here. I beat my besetting sin here. I was content. Now Luke has shown us over and over uh, with the story of Ananias and Sapphira, with the disciples bringing money and laying it at the apostles' feet, and in various ways in other stories, that power over money is equivalent to spiritual power. Paul says here, I had power over money. Money did not have power over me. I said no to silver. I said no to gold. I said no to nice clothes. I didn't sit here and covet those things. I was content. So that's the first step in how Paul entrusted himself to God. Entrusting himself to God looked like obedience. Particularly in his weakest area, which was the area of covetousness. Right? No one would accuse Paul of being lazy in his studies. That wasn't his besetting sin, wanting to close the book too soon. His besetting sin was covetousness. We each have our own besetting sin. And Paul says, I'm in God's keeping. So I stood against mine. I stood against covetousness. Yes, he adds, you yourself know, you yourselves know, these hands are provided for my necessities. Paul didn't just abstain from covetousness, he worked to support himself. We talked this morning about a lawful calling and diligence in it being required in the fourth commandment. You have six days to do the work of your calling. You need a calling and you need to be doing your work on those six days. Paul says, that was me. I worked with my hands, and I provided for myself, and I provided for my companions, my ministry team. I supported the whole team by my labor. To work is to be kept by God from a great many sins. And conversely, to be underemployed or unemployed is to be in big trouble. There's a direct link between unemployment and many of the social pathologies of our time. Drug abuse, pornography, and the list goes on. People who don't have a calling and diligence in it are sitting ducks for Satan. Paul says, wasn't me. I entrusted myself to God, as I entrust you to God, by working hard. When you trust God, you don't sit back, relax, and say, well, God will spoon the soup into my mouth. When you trust God, you work hard and you provide for yourself and for those around you as you have the ability and opportunity. Paul contributed generously to others as well as taking care of himself. You all are a generous congregation. Praise God for that. That's what your calling is. And I'm called to be a generous part of this congregation as well. Because that's how we entrust ourselves 
to God. We talked about this in Sunday school with the widow's might saying, Lord, take care of me. And I'm asking you to take care of me by giving you what I have. Essentially, Paul is saying if you aren't giving, you're not doing what you should to experience the protective keeping of God who keeps you through your work and also through your generosity. Paul didn't just work and give. Paul went a step further. I read last year in a magazine article that oftentimes those who talk left live right phrase that's really stuck with me. Many people who claim to be against sexual morality and hard work and merit and all of these things actually live lives that look pretty good. They are sexually faithful to their spouse. They work hard. And yet they utter all the woke pieties of our era. Paul wasn't like that. He didn't talk left and live right. He talked right and lived right. He wasn't afraid to say what he was doing and to defend it and to teach it. I have shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. I didn't just do it, he says. I talked about it. I defended it. In a hostile cultural climate, it feels a lot safer oftentimes to just do it. Well, I keep my mouth shut. I'm faithful to my spouse. I work hard. I give generously. I don't believe in all the cultural pieties. But I also don't mention it. I don't explain how what I'm doing is directly contrary to the establishment. But Paul did explain it. Paul wasn't afraid to teach it in every way. He was ready and willing to openly explain his manner of life and to encourage Christians to work hard and give generously. He didn't say laziness is just as morally worthy as hard work. He didn't say stinginess and greed is just as good as generosity. Whatever you want to do, man. He did not say that. He defended and taught what he practiced. Right? Practice what you preach, but... In an upside-down culture like ours, it can be scarier to preach than to practice. Paul did both. And by reciting his example, what is he doing? He's calling on the church, the Ephesian elders, to do both. That is our calling as the church. Not just to do the right thing here within our own four walls, but to explain, to vindicate, to justify verbally why we are doing this and to encourage others to do the same. In every way, I have shown you that you must support the weak. Paul was about caring for the weak. Are we? Paul taught the words of Jesus, too. The second half of verse 35, remember the words of the Lord Jesus. That was the substance of, of Paul's ministry. Here's who Jesus is. Here's what he has to say. In other words, Paul wasn't primarily about morality. Even the morality of hard work. He taught that they should work. But his message didn't begin and end with get a job and work hard. His message began and ended with 
the gospel of Jesus Christ, the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Beginning and ending in faith, that's what he was about. Here's Jesus, here's who he is. Jesus said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. Paul demonstrated that in his own life. He gave rather than receiving. And what is he telling the Ephesian elders? The kingdom of God will continue when you as elders and when the church as a whole learns to give rather than receive. The church is a generous body that is about giving and is not sitting there saying, what are you doing for me? Who's taking care of me? How come nobody's looking out for me? Right? There are certain cases, as I understand it now, winning their way through the federal courts to try to remove some of the tax privileges that churches currently enjoy in our system. Should those go away, which they could at any time, what will our attitude be? Will we be with Jesus and Paul and say it is more blessed to give than to receive? Or will the church throw a big fit? We as individuals throw a fit if those laws affect us personally. The message is here. The blessing lies in giving. That's how Jesus lived. That's how Paul lived. That's how the people of God are called to live. Paul sought this blessing by working hard and giving generously. We should seek the blessing by working hard and giving generously. And if it ends up going to a cause that we don't like, what? I'm giving money to the United States federal government? If pay taxes to whom they're owed, Paul says. I can tell you, I can promise you that the church in Ephesus was not a tax-exempt organization under first century Roman law. Didn't happen. So Jesus gave rather than receiving, and that's what Paul concludes with. He brings his speech to an end on the words of Jesus. If you learned anything from my example, from my work, from me passing the baton to you, from me telling you that God purchased the church with his own blood, his last word is this. It is more blessed to give than to recede. Why be generous? Because Jesus was. How do we know he was generous? Well, he paid for the church with his own blood. As verse 28 says, God is keeping the church. He did it through Paul in his ministry in Ephesus. Now that Paul has moved on, he continues to do it through his word and through the work of elders and churches that continue to minister like Paul through hard work, through generosity, through power over money. So stay in God's keeping. Live in it. Die in it. Be received into heaven to see your Savior who bought you with His own blood. Let's pray. Father, we ask that You would make us a people who actually believe and live out the truth that it is more blessed to give than to receive. Help us to seek that blessing. Father, we pray that you would glorify yourself in your church. We pray that you would keep us and build us up through your word, which edifies, which grants us an inheritance, and which does so as a body, which does it for all of us together. 
Help us to be that community of the sanctified. Those who are being made holy week by week through the word of God and the keeping of Jesus Christ. Father, we praise you that though Paul is gone, the kingdom continues, the certainty of the kingdom continues, and that the way it continues is through the proclamation of the word of the living God. We bless you in the name of Jesus, the living word. Amen.